City Church, take a moment and start moving back to your seats if you would. Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you didn't catch it earlier, just a quick reminder, if you're a guest with us today and you have children under the age of three, you're welcome to use our co-op room upstairs. Uh, if you just take a exit out these doors, up the stairs, and to your left, you're going to find our co-op room to provide child care throughout the service. Uh, also, a quick reminder, you have a TV right outside in the lobby. We just unloaded a lot of sugar onto the room. Uh, so if you've got extra, extra wiggles today, you need some time to, to step away. You won't miss any portion of the service. There's a television just outside those doors. Okay, join me in reading or listening to our scripture for today. Uh, there should be a prayer of illumination behind me. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews 3 this morning. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled. Was it not also those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear 
that they would not enter his rest, but to those who are disobedient. So we see that we are unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Morning once again. Welcome to City Church. Thank you, Josh, for reading our passage for today. It's good to be with you. Always good to open up the Word as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. Last Sunday, there was an article published in The Guardian about the shifting landscape of Christianity in the United States, and that's a topic with many facets, but the angle of the article zeroed in on a simple analysis of the number of churches opening versus the number of churches closing in a given year. And according to the article, which cited LifeWay Lifeway Research as their source, uh, the last year for which such data is available is 2019. And in 2019, about 3,000 new Protestant churches opened their doors for public worship in the United States, which sounds like a pretty healthy number until you consider that in that same year, about 4,500 Protestant churches closed their doors. Apparently, in all their years of studying such data, LifeWay Research reported that 2019 uh, was the first year on record uh, during which the total number of Christian churches didn't grow, Uh, which is somewhat remarkable when you consider that the difference in 2019 wasn't small. Uh, 33% more churches closed than did open. That's a rather precipitous drop. What is more, when you consider that in March of 2020, COVID arrived, well, who knows what the landscape looks like now. I'm sure volumes will be written about what effects the pandemic has had on the Christian church in America and elsewhere. Uh, LifeWay Research reported uh, elsewhere that Protestant pastors have seen church attendance resume of late, but only at about 85% of pre-pandemic levels. As Dylan sang in 64, the times, they are a-changing. In Matthew 16, after Peter's momentous confession in which he rightly identifies the identity and nature of Jesus Christ, Uh, the Lord responds with gracious and empowering affirmation, stating in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock on which Jesus promised to build his church was not simply Peter, the man, as is sometimes believed, and this is understandable uh, because in the Greek the name Peter means rock. And so the wordplay there is certainly intentional. In one sense, the church was built on Peter in terms of historical primacy. The New Testament church had to start somewhere. And so, in terms of like formal origination, it began with Peter, yes. But in terms of spiritual authority, it was the substance of his confession which held the staying power, not the man, but the message. And what was that message? 
Well, it was what he said in verse 16 that prompted Jesus to reply so affirmingly. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This morning I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, uh, the church against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Sure, as uh, the research I referenced earlier shows, individual churches open and close their doors all of the time. That's to be expected. At one time, city church didn't exist, and I'm sure it's not going to last forever. But Jesus wasn't referring to any particular congregation, but his people, his body, the church, which is expressed locally in covenant communities just like this one. By now, we are getting accustomed to the literary sophistication and theological complexity of the writing in the book of Hebrews. As such, as we read through chapter 3 today, there's a lot packed in there. And to be sure, many different sermons could be preached on the various ideas contained within these 19 verses. But as, as I sat with the message this week, a couple of salient ideas rose to the surface And as you might suspect by now, they had to do with what it means to be the church. It is both a delight and a duty. It's both a privilege and a responsibility. And it's those ideas which make up our outline this morning. Just two points, and they are as follows. The honor of being the church, a people preserved for God's residence, looking at the first six verses. And then the onus of being the church, a people persevering for God's rest, looking at the last 13 verses. And as a heads up, I'm going to spend far more time on point number one than I am point number two, just so you don't get worried, okay? So let's dig in. Number one, the honor of being the church, a people preserved for God's residence. Let's look at the text. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Like I said, a lot of ideas packed in there, but allow me to attempt to sort of collect them all uh, in a way that builds and culminates in our first point. First, it's always wise uh, to remember, consider the context Recall the book of Hebrews is more like a sermon than it is a letter. And as its audience is a group of Jewish Christians likely living in Italy who were being tempted and and hassled to compromise their faith due to religious ostracism and social opposition. Religious ostracism ostracism, uh, from their Jewish family and friends, social opposition from uh, Roman political pressure and cultural influences. And so, Hebrews is meant overall as an encouragement to these Christ followers to hold firm in their faith. 
The book does contain five warning passages, one of which occurs here in chapter 3, but it's not a book of doom and foreboding. Rather, it's a book of light and hope and beauty. And the author picks up where he left off in chapter 2. If you recall, uh, the first two chapters of Hebrews established that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? Well, here in chapter 3, the author transitions to argue that Jesus is greater than Moses. You see, to the Old Covenant Jewish community, Moses was the man. He was revered above all others, and rightly so. Uh, He was both a prophet and a priest whom God used mightily to rescue and lead his people in the early days of their liberation from Egypt. Here in verses 1 and 2, the author compares Jesus to Moses, describing him as, quote, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, Verse 2, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. An apostle was sent by God to speak and act on behalf of God like Old Testament prophets did. A high priest or a priest did two things. Number one, he represented men before God. And number two, he made sacrifices for their sins, offered sacrifices more more applicably. Moses was the only Old Testament figure who fulfilled both of those roles, prophet and priest. And so here the author of Hebrews is making an important point. Whereas Moses was a very important apostle, prophet, and priest, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, Jesus is the very one Moses prefigured and anticipated. Jesus' superiority over the angels was established in chapters 1 and 2. Here in chapter 3, we learn of Jesus' superiority over Moses. They were both faithful in the execution of their duties, but Jesus is worthy of more glory and honor because he is not merely a servant in God's house, verse 5, but a son over God's house, first part of verse 6. Recall what happens in the book of Exodus. It's such a remarkable book. It tells the story of God through the people of God from the time of their captivity in Egypt, uh, through their liberation in the Exodus, to their time of wandering in the wilderness, to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, to the building of the tabernacle in which the very presence of God promised to dwell. It's an absolutely momentous book. And Moses, as God's servant, is at the heart of it all. Here's the thing, though. All of Exodus points to Jesus, every last part of it. Indeed, what did Jesus tell the Pharisees in John chapter 5? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote of Jesus. And what did Moses write? 
He wrote the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of it points to Jesus. All of it prepares us for Jesus. Everything in the Mosaic administration points to Christ. And just think about the movement of the book of Exodus. It's absolutely fascinating. It's so full of drama. You've got the miraculous turn of events early on in which baby Moses is spared destruction, having been stowed away on a little ark of his own, uh, floating top the water. He's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, and then his own birth mother is chosen to raise him as uh, his nurse. Fast forward, and you've got Moses' life-changing encounter with God in the burning bush. He's called and equipped to lead, which eventually uh, he does. It leads to an intense power struggle between the God of Moses and the Pharaoh of Egypt, which leads to the ten plagues and the subsequent liberation of God's people through the miracle of the Red Sea passing. You've got the struggles of the wilderness uh, wanderings, which uh, we'll consider briefly in point number two. You've got the giving of the law on Sinai in chapter 20. And then in chapters 25 through 40, nearly half of the book, you've got this prolonged section that is focused exclusively on worship. So think about it this way. You see this picture, this salient picture of bondage. You then see the intrusion of salvation, the liberation, after which comes the law. Grace always precedes the law, which then leads to worship. So you've got this picture of man's sin. Then you've got this beautiful act of God's redeeming grace. Then he explains his will through the law, which leads the people to worship and glorify him. Okay? So for all of the dramatic, earth-shaking, paradigm-shifting, world-altering events that make up the first 15, 20 chapters of Exodus, what was it all gathering toward? Worship. In the first half of the book of Exodus, you've got the stuff of movies. Indeed, many Hollywood films have been made based on what transpires in the first half of Exodus. And in terms of excitement and tone and pacing, the second half of the book of Exodus is a downright snoozer compared to what precedes it. It's full of all this seemingly tedious detail about the exact specifications for the tabernacle, how it should be built, what it should look like, the particular materials that should be used, and on and on. Why? Well, because for a time, the tabernacle was God's own house, the very dwelling place of his presence. And that, that was the reason for all the drama in the first part of the book of Exodus. Remember the catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Worship. The book of Exodus is all about Jesus, who is also called what? Emmanuel. 
Immanuel, im with Anu, us, El, God, with us, God. Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Moses was God's faithful servant. Hebrews 3, 5 identifies him as, quote, faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, i.e. Christ Jesus. Moses was God's faithful servant. Jesus is God's faithful son. Moses served in God's house. Jesus rules over God's house. And what is God's house? In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle. See Exodus. In the New Testament, it's the church. See Ephesians, for one example. Uh, look here at the latter part of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. As some have put it, Old Covenant Israel is the bud of which the new covenant church is the flower. Old covenant Israel is the bud of which the new covenant church is the flower, blossomed. His house, as the author of Hebrews puts it, is the people of God. And what is the primary purpose of building a house? It's so that the builder might go and live in it as his dwelling place. It's a residence. A house is not meant to simply be looked at, but lived in. And the divinely designed community in which that dwelling occurs is the local church and all of its varieties and expressions, so long as their foundation truly is the confession of which the author speaks in Hebrews 3 verse 1 which ultimately is the substance of Peter's own words in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The corporate community of saints is the household of God, as we, as we heard referenced today in our call to worship, Ephesians 2, verse 19. See also 1 Timothy three fifteen, in which Paul mentions the household of God which is, quote, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. If you're a Christian and you do not have an extremely high view of the local church, you have misread the Bible and misunderstood the gospel. Now, maybe you've been hurt by the church. Things were said and done to you that caused real damage? I don't deny that's possible. In fact, I would say it's likely. After all, what is the church if not? A group of recovering sinners who at times say and do things which sadly reflect the old man far more than, it, than they do the new. I don't mean to minimize uh, because I, I know that church-related church pain uh, can be uniquely hard to navigate. Believe me, I know. But such is the nature of our communal life in sanctification. 
as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.22, in Jesus we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And what do you imagine are the primary means by and through which he accomplishes such redemptive building? Well, through confession, through repentance, through forgiveness, through laughter, through tears, through hurt feelings and reconciliation. And when all of that and all of its messiness is done in the ongoing context and rhythm of worship, then all of that is used for our good in the service of our redemption, our remaking. The local church is a beautiful mess. It's a glorious ruin. It's a magnificent oddity. One of the reasons why life in the church is so irreplaceably important in the Christian life is because it's such an efficient means by which faith is grown, stretched, challenged, encouraged, matured. People have argued about the merits and validity of church membership for generations. Now, can we find a proof text in the Bible for the institutionalized mechanism of membership as we currently know it and experience it? Well, no. But that's because I would argue the essence of it is simply assumed, <laughs> not to mention clearly demonstrated. Consider the analogy of marriage. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, in describing the purpose and efficacy of a legal marriage contract, uh, Pastor Tim Keller illustrates a point by referencing a woman who expressed her dissatisfaction with the formality of marriage by saying something that so many others have said. Why do we need a piece of paper in order to love one another? I don't need a piece of paper to love you. It only complicates things. Keller then explains, she was using a very specific definition of love. She was assuming that love is, in essence, a particular kind of feeling. She was saying, I feel romantic passion for you, and the piece of paper doesn't enhance that at all, and it may hurt it. But when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say, I don't, I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say, my love for you has not reached the marriage level. And while it must be stated that I am not equating church membership with the marriage covenant, I am saying they are analogous. To borrow Keller's rationale, some Christians nowadays say things like, I love Jesus, but I don't want to ruin it by becoming a member at a local church. 
And in one sense, their trepidation is spot on because intuitively they recognize that membership obligates us to one another, right? Not unlike marriage vows. It means we have to put up with each other's stuff. It makes us vulnerable. It opens us up to being disappointed or let down or really hurt. But ideally, when grace and humility are present, accentuated by a genuine mutual desire to grow in Christ together, well, then those moments of awkwardness and discomfort, of pain and conflict, well, these become the very entry points for the gospel to reshape us. And this is all made possible and ever more likely if and when it's done within the context of faithful, glorifying, Christ-centered worship. Folks, the local church is an absolute wonder. And that's not because there's anything particularly noteworthy about any one local church. <laughs> this isn't about City Church. It's not about the journey. It's not about grace and peace. It's not about any one church. It's about all of them. It's about the covenant community of God, His dwelling place, which happens to be expressed locally in ordinary communities just like this one. There's nothing remarkable about City Church. We are gloriously mundane. The music is wonderfully average. The preaching is fantastically normal, if not dependably forgettable. And that's why, that's why the local church is a wonder. Because God dwells with us here. He has chosen to make his dwelling place. That's crazy. Of all places, he has chosen to reside here and do some of his best work. We are his bride. We are precious to him. How dare we criticize or minimize the beauty and value of the local church? When Paul was advising the Ephesian elders, he said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is why, this is why you don't just walk out of a church. People do it all the time, and it blows my mind. I find it appalling. I don't get it. You wouldn't just walk out of a marriage. Some people do, and that's a tragic thing. But for the most part, a marriage is fought for. Right? Counselors are sought. Friends are confided in. A struggle is had to wrestle toward peace and reconciliation in an attempt to save it. Why? Because vows were made. A contract was entered into. It's a very important relationship. Why don't we feel similarly about the church, which uses marriage language to describe its corporate identity? We are the very bride of Christ. 
for whom he shed his own blood. Consider how the reformer Martin Luther put it. He said, apart from the church, salvation is impossible. Now think about that. In particular, think about who said it. Okay, this is Martin Luther, the man who railed against the abuses of the church. This is Martin of the 95 Theses, Luther. And yet his convictions about the ultimate beauty and irreplaceable importance of the church remained. Now, in saying, apart from the church, salvation is impossible, we know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, we know, that Luther was not suggesting that the church somehow furnishes or provides salvation. Absolutely not. Only God saves. Salvation is the work and gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But because those who are saved can't reasonably fulfill what it means to be a Christian fully apart from the church, well then, membership, hear me, Membership becomes an indispensable mark of our sanctification, not as a work to be done, doesn't earn you anything, but as a means of grace by which God matures us and grows us. Why would we neglect that? I read one theologian this week who stated it plainly, there is no greater privilege than membership in the church. And he meant that in two ways. He meant that at the macro level, like the people of God, but he also meant it at a micro level, the local congregation, for the call of the former assumes the reality of the latter. If you're part of the people of God, then you're a member of his church, hopefully, somewhere, ideally. My mom has been a covenant member at Four Mile Church in southwestern Pennsylvania for over 50 years. Uh, it's the church in which I was raised, the church from which this very pulpit comes. Again, there's nothing special about Four Mile. It's just an average congregation. Now, I happen to think my mom is a very godly woman. Uh, she exhibits the fruit of the Spirit in very endearing and beautiful ways, in my biased opinion. Uh, but I am convinced, I am convinced that one of the primary means by which the Lord accomplished that work in her is simply due to the fact that she has hung around four mile for over 50 years. Half a century of commitment. She's seen pastors come and go, staff turnover in the dozens, worship styles change, a massive conflict about 15 years ago that split the church in two, and yet she remained, even when it was extremely difficult and painful for her relationally and personally costly to do so. Why would she do that? Well, because that's where she took her membership vows in 1972. For Christians to treat the church as anything less than the blood-bought bride of Christ is at least harmful, if not sinful. And to downplay the importance of something like commitment to the church, 
When Christ himself demonstrated the last measure of devotion in his self-giving sacrifice is deeply offensive. Not just to me. I mean, who cares what I think? If I may be so bold, it offends Jesus. We began working and planting a city church in the summer of 2010, almost 16 years ago. We did the bulk of preparation in 2008, and we eventually launched public worship on Easter of 2009. That following year, 2010, we had three new member inductions, one in April, one in June, one in October, by which we welcomed a total of 17 covenant members. Of those 17, six remain. They are Jess Fox, Nate Van Valkenburg in the first round, Lindsay Lutchens in the second induction, and Aaron and Shane Dugan and my wife in the third. Don't ask me why. My wife waited until the <laughs> third induction. Maybe she was wondering if this thing was legit, biding her time. Anyways, uh, Jess, Nate, Lindsay, Aaron, Shane, Beth, I hope and pray you'll still be here in the year 2060, uh, worshiping Jesus in this wonderfully mundane church in all of its beautiful mess and glorious ruin. Here's the thing. You are different people now than you were almost 13 years ago when you took your membership vows. And a lot of that maturing that has happened in you is the direct result of the mutual submission and shared sacrifice and common love and patient endurance that you've experienced as members of this body. Praise Jesus. Let's return to the text, the latter part of verse 6 again. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are a people preserved to be God's dwelling place, his holy residence, as it were, if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, if you have even a basic understanding of the rules of grammar, you'll know that the word if signals conditionality. We are preserved as his house if we persevere, if we hold fast, if we remain faithful. And for those of you who are familiar with Reformed theology, such conditionality makes us nervous. Whatever does the author of Hebrews mean here? Well, this brings us to our second and final point, which I promise will be much briefer than the first. Number two, the onus of being the church, of people persevering for God's rest. Hopefully, I've argued somewhat successfully that uh, being the church is a real privilege. It's a high honor, in fact. But as much as it is a delight, it's also a duty. It comes with real responsibilities and obligations. We've got a job to do. Not simply as it concerns the mission out there, i.e. going and making disciples, a la Matthew 28, 19, and 20. No, the job also entails a host of responsibilities that concern internal affairs as well. And this is what the author of Hebrews addresses in this next section. And for the sake of time, I won't read it all again. Josh did that for us earlier. But I will point out that the Old Testament passage cited there in verses 7 through 11 is from Psalm 95. And it's actually verses 7 through 11 there as well. 
And what this is referencing is the wilderness wanderings experienced by Moses and the people of God after they had been liberated from Egypt and had crossed through the Red Sea. They had demonstrated trust and faith in following after the Lord that he would provide for their basic needs like food and water. And yet, time and again, the people grumbled and complained that they were actually worse off in the wilderness than they had been as slaves in Egypt. As a matter of fact, they went so far as to say to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's Exodus 16, verse 3. Repeatedly, the people of God demonstrated faithlessness in the wilderness, despite the many mighty acts of God through which he delivered them, through which he proved his own goodness and trustworthiness time and again. And because of the faithless grumbling and complaining, God swore that they would not enter his rest, which for them meant the land of Canaan toward which they so wandered. And so the author of Hebrews is referencing that very familiar, very specific historical context for these Jewish Christians as a teachable moment. And you see, these Jewish Christians here in Italy were experiencing their own kind of wilderness wanderings. And so the author of Hebrews is urging them, urging them let's not be like our forebears, right? Despite the hardships and temptations to compromise, let's not lose our faith and slip away into unbelief like they did. What did he write? Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, one of the, one of the main jobs that we have as family members uh, within the church is to keep one another accountable against the kind of hard sorry, heart hardening that happens as a result of the deceitfulness of sin via things like grumbling and complaining against the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, well, I think we're a far cry from grumbling against the Lord as they did sinfully in the wilderness. I mean, perhaps when you read the scoffs and the jeers of the people against Moses and Aaron, like I read a little bit ago in, in, in uh, Exodus 16, you find that appalling. How, 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 how dare they do that? You can't fathom how somebody in their position could do that after having been rescued so miraculously through the Red Sea Passage. What nerve, right? Until we realize that we often grumble and complain about far less. If I'm not mistaken, not many of us have gone without food and water recently. And yet we do grumble if not audibly, to one another, uh, internally in the privacy of our own hearts and minds, yet the Lord still hears us. He still hears your grumbling. He still hears my grumbling. And one of our jobs as a covenant community is to encourage one another to run the race, to encourage one another with gospel words of hope and perspective to encourage one another to fight the good fight of faith with humility and courage and resolve in order that we might be 
we might not be prohibited from entering the goodness and glory of his rest uh, via unbelief, verse 19. We are to encourage one another to not grumble and complain, which stifles faith and hardens hearts. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Let's not be mistaken. I'm not suggesting that genuine Christians can lose their salvation. Here, Pastor Richard D. Phillips out of Second Pres in Greenville, South Carolina, he writes, There is no conflict between the teaching that all true believers are safe in the hands of God and the teaching that emphasizes that Christians must persevere in faith. All true Christians will continue in the faith until they are gathered to God. But it is also true that true Christian faith is proved only by steadfastness under trial. We are saved by faith alone, but the test of our faith comes through our willingness to persevere under difficulty and persecution. Those who do not persevere, like, like Paul's one-time companion Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10, and those who betray Jesus to this world, like Judas Iscariot, reveal by their actions that they never truly possessed saving faith and never truly were saved. The honor of being the church is the privilege of being numbered among those whom God has saved and is saving by and through his indwelling spirit. But the onus of being the church is the gift of walking with and alongside one another through this life, through highs and lows, through peace and conflict, through awkward conversations and humbling repentance, persevering together to enter God's rest. There's so much, I mean, there is so much more to say. I could preach a dozen sermons out of Hebrews 3 alone. Forgive me for going a bit long today, but if it was difficult for you to sit through me saying so much, know that it was even more difficult for me to say so very little. I'll close with what's likely a familiar excerpt from Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. I couldn't help but think of this when I read how the author of Hebrews put it in verse 6, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And that imagery of the people of God as God's house is so very rich. Some of you know Lewis played on this idea, and while it is true that, that Lewis was referencing it on an individual level, like each of us as, as Christians, uh, I think the picture he paints in the excerpt I'm about to read can also apply very accurately to our corporate lives in the church as the very household of God. So, as I read Lewis's words here, hear them through the lens of our corporate life together as the people of God he has preserved in order that we might persevere. He writes, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. We are his residence. He is our rest. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have chosen this odd little thing called the church to do your business, Lord, to, uh, to work your grace and, and write the history of redemption. Lord, it's mind-blowing. It truly is. What a privilege it is to be here, not because it's City Church, but because it's any church who calls upon the name of Christ in faith. And so, Lord, give us a sense, a taste of the beauty and, and, and gravity of that goodness as we come to the table, as we continue to sing songs, as we pray, as we leave this place. Give us a deep gratitude and appreciation for what you are doing in the local church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.